You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. everyone, John Wertheim here. This is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is Robbie Koenig. Robbie is a former ATP player, an excellent, absolutely first-rate commentator, analyst, and tennis mind. But also, he was one of the co-hosts of the Tennis for Africa event that Roger Federer hosted, along with Rafa Nadal, in Cape Town last weekend. You probably saw this event uh, clogging up your social media happily before it was replaced by Parasite. Um, but this was an event that raised more than $3 million for the Federer Foundation and was a tennis match played before the biggest crowd in history, more than 50,000 people. Um, it looked from afar, from an ocean away, like a tremendous event. And uh, instead of relying on that secondhand information, we'll go to someone who was right there in the stadium and, again, was one of the co-hosts. Uh, Robbie is South African, so has special insight. This is a great conversation, both about the Tennis for Africa event, but also tennis tennis in south africa and we also have a talk about tennis analytics at the tail end so a good conversation with one of the all-time good guys here from south africa's robbie how are you i'm really good i so fired up after what was uh, quite an inspiring weekend for the people of south africa hey bud that's what i want to talk about um we we saw youtube clips and uh it seemed to dominate my social media feed but you were there What'd you see? You know, John, um, what made it so much fun was the top, you know, it, it wasn't a tennis spectacle like what we would see on a regular basis at tour events. The tennis was fun, but for me, the joy came in South Africans who have been pining to see Federer and even Nadal live. They got to see it on their home turf and in the most spectacular extravaganza. That's the best way of, of me describing it because it wasn't just a standalone tennis event. There was a lot of stuff going on. And the amount of buzz it created amongst the people 
who were there, but also the people who weren't there, was what's given me the most joy. Because I've been so privileged to watch these guys, you know, week in and week out. Mm-hmm. And you can't take it for granted. So to see the, the joy on these people's faces, and then they started to feel like they were contributing to the Roger Federer Foundation, which, of course, they were simply by being there. So, it was, you know, they were doubly invested. Yes, I'm, I'm buying a ticket to this, but I know it's going to benefit something bigger than me. And that's what was so cool. What was, you know, you know sometimes we see these numbers and they say 800,000 people attended the Australian Open. And you say, all right, all right I, guess, yes, that's, that's, I guess that's a lot. 50, whatever the number was, 51,000 people saw this. I mean, that that is an NFL football stadium. I mean, that is, uh, that's Wembley. How in the world do 50,000 people watch a tennis match? And that's, that's twice the size, that's, that's two and a half times the size of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Well, explain the scale. Yes. So, just so you understand, it was a purpose-built stadium for the 2010 uh, Soccer World Cup. So, it is a soccer stadium. And that wasn't even capacity because they had to block out um, a few seats because of the way the viewing was structured. Okay. And that, I mean, it's a spectacular stadium at the best of times. I think they had a semi-final of the World Cup there. So you can understand the kind of scale that you are working with. And, and John, just to give you an idea, um, my good friend, J.L. De Jager and his business partner were involved on the South African side in helping put this thing on. They could have sold that three and a half times over. They had 350,000 people online in a half an hour looking to get tickets for that. And, of course, there were only 50,000 tickets. So that gives you an idea of the demand. So that was never a problem. Um, and, you know, it, it's a big stadium. But the thing about it is is that it, it's not a very vast stadium. So it's for 50,000, it's, it's pretty close. And whilst it's not a tennis stadium and a tennis atmosphere where you're right on top of the action like some of the big ones we see tennis at, it was still a very good vantage point for everybody there. They, they would have got a real sense uh, of what they were watching. Can I ask about Roger Federer's appeal in South Africa? Is, is this Roger Federer a global figure, or, or do South Africans really connect Lynette Federer, his mother, the foundation, and the South African lineage? Uh, totally, John. Um, we are... South Africans are a passionate sporting nation. We are very much like, who would be a good country to compare to? Like the Aussies. You know, sport is such an integral part of our society, especially at high school. High school sport is bigger than college slash university sport, as you guys would call it. So from a young age, indoctrinated with sport, you know, a lot of kids go to school because it's of the sport, not because of the academics. And that's the kind of society that, a lot of us have grown up in on. And then you have the connection with Roger, um, Lynette being South African. And then, you know, a lot of people have known that for a long time. So there's without a doubt that connection. Then you throw into the mix everything that Federer brings to the table, what a good guy he is, the way he plays the game. Um, and and the fact that, you know, at the World Cup, he sends here Khaleesi a message to congratulate the boys on winning. You know, that resonates with South African people big time, hey? And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons he's so popular here. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, I want to go back to that World Cup in a second, but but t- tell me what your role was. I, I heard your voice. I was happy to uh, I, I was happy to to hear you on my YouTube clips. What what was your role in the evening? So I was involved in in emceeing the event, basically co-hosting the event with the South African presenter. Um, so that was great. It's very interesting how how involved the Roger Federer Foundation is with everything. So they have a designated team that helps put the event together because they've done so many of these now. They connect with the South African team. They have a blueprint. They put that in place. So I was asked to co-MC the event as well as commentate, which was a lot of fun for me because I don't get to do that too often. Right. Uh, a little daunting in the beginning because I haven't done a lot of it. But, you know, I did a lot of prep for it, and it was great for me to take me out of my comfort zone and and the amount of confidence it gives you after you've done something like that is fantastic. So I would feel comfortable doing that again in, in any sort of environment, John. But it's it's very interesting the way they do it, how um, the foundation asks of you to ask specific questions because at the end of the day, it is for Rogers Foundation and they want to speak about that and get that message across. So that was nice, but also tricky for me because I'm not talking only about tennis. I'm having to talk and ask questions about a subject that is perhaps not as familiar to me. So that required uh, a bit of studying on my behalf to make sure I, I got that all locked down. But it was so nice just to to be behind the scenes and watching it all come together. I was in Cape Town a couple of days before. My son was one of the ball kids. In fact, he was the oh, ball nice. kid that ended up having a rally um, on the court. I don't know if you saw oh, that. I saw with, that. Uh, oh, that was Black your boy. Girl. He, he, he was, was your the little boy. on the other side oh, of nice. the court. So, I mean, pure luck. Uh, he just happened to be in that corner at that time. You know, if, if Rafa had been in the other corner, he wouldn't have got a shot. So there was a, there was that great connection there. And just to get the vibe, being courtside for, for everything, the energy that was resonating inside the stadium when Federer walked out, when Rafa walked up, let me tell you, the star of the show was as well with those three, was Lynette Federer. John, when she walked out, I saw that. and right. you, I don't know if you saw the energy, it was unbelievable. And the first question I asked her was an Afrikaans. And then, of course, you know, there's a big Afrikaans community in Cape Town. They went nuts again. So for me, feeling that energy uh, from courtside was fantastic. So I can only imagine what that felt like for, for the players. And Roger mentioned as much. He said he was, you know, when he walked out on the court, he was struggling to do the first interview with my with my co-presenter because he was, he was welling up inside with the... With the joy that he had received from the fans, I I would stop here and point out. Uh, it, it seemed to me from afar that Rafa Nadal played his role to perfection as well. Would you uh, Would you agree with that? Got such a legend. He, he, he got it to the nth degree. He got it exactly. He, he, he got realized. It. Mm-hmm. He understands that it's Rogers Foundation, and that he wasn't um, the star of the show. But he was a very important supporting act, and it's it's definitely worth highlighting how many followers he has as well. He is massive in this country; they love him. 
um, the following is not as big as Federer's, but it's it's huge. Um, and he just gets it, John. He just gets it. That's uh, I, I was saying. Here, here are two rivals that are you know ranked two and three in the world. Right? This isn't. Uh, these are two retirees. I mean, these are still two guys in the throes of their rivalry. One of them has 20 majors. One of them has 19. They're, they're both fighting for this, this greatest of all time designation. And to do this, not when they're 55 years old and retired and everything's chummy, but to, to do this at this stage in their careers, I, I thought was pretty remarkable on both sides. But, uh, Boy, I, it, it looked from afar like Rafa really, as you say, he, he just seemed to get the dynamic intuitively. Yeah, I mean, we were trying to, Jason and I, Jason Goodall, who was commentating with me, we were trying to think of two players who have been you know, at the peak of their powers. And not, as you say, not just any two players, two of the greatest the sport has ever seen. Do something like that. And, and nothing sprung to mind. I couldn't think of anything. I don't know if... You know, in the States, there's been athletes like that. I don't know what the rivalries were like. Um, and the friendships were like with some of the famous basketball players. You know, maybe Magic and Larry Bird. You know, yeah. I don't know if there's any comparisons there. But, but for me, nothing sprung to mind. So, you know, again, not only are they pioneers in the records that they're setting, but also off the court, which, I mean, it's just going to add to their legacy, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I've said this before. I think these guys realize that they are bracketed together for life and they may as well embrace it. And they may as well, instead of creating distance and instead of making this tribal, they may as well lean into the rivalry because it's inevitable that we're going to think of them uh, in a lot of ways yoked together. Um, let me ask you, you, you mentioned the World Cup. And I, I was, when South Africa won the World Cup, whatever that was, in, in October in Japan, um, that very quickly became a mechanism to talk about South Africa today and, and a prism to talk about race. Um, I mean, take this wherever you want, but how did the event the other night fit into what South Africa is in 2020? You know, sports has been one of the greatest unifying tools in, in South African history in the last 25 years. And once again, I think that's exactly what it was. Just like the World Cup was, it crosses racial barriers. Um, you know, even if for a fleeting moment that everybody embraces the good, and I think that's exactly what we saw in the match uh, match in Africa is that again, you know, you've got these two amazing people that are coming together and, and almost them uniting the country and everybody just jumping on board and enjoying it for what it was. These are two foreign guys that have contributed much to good philanthropic work in South Africa to underprivileged kids of all races, but probably mostly black kids that have benefited from the amount of funds that, Roger has plowed into this country. And I think, you know, probably the white people as well see it as uh, more of a tennis match. I think maybe some of the black people see all the philanthropic work he does. So it's, it's a whole melting pot of great stuff, getting to see Roger and Rafa, appreciating everything that they've done. And I think everything that they've done has touched the different people, the different 
racial groups in different ways. Mm-hmm. And once again, it was a celebration of just all things good uh, in South Africa that has been brought about by this guy and the, another guy and Rafael Nadal playing his part. And then, of course, you throw in the fact that Trevor Noah came back and, and Trevor's a household name here and he is, again, one of these guys who cross, crosses racial barriers because I'm not sure if you know his background, but... Yeah, read the book. Uh, you sure. know, a, a white... Yeah, so, you know, he's a melting pot of religions and, and ethnic groups is Trevor. So he was a perfect guy to be part um, of the doubles match. Is it uh, naive to think about this in terms of possibly uh, sort of catalyzing tennis in South Africa? I mean, is, is this something that um, could spark interest and growth, or was this sort of a, a wonderful one-off weekend? Sure. That's a, that's a tricky question. Um, you know, I would only hope that it would spark growth, but you just never know. I mean, we'll, we'll only know the answer to that, I guess, in two or three years' time. But, you know, a few of us were discussing the former players that were there, that when we first saw the likes of Yvonne Lendl and Pat Cash and Johan Creek come back to South Africa and play in Sun City when they had some, some great exhibition matches there that they used to do there, that inspired us just to see them live. And, I mean, if Roger and... and and Rafa doesn't inspire you as a young person to take up tennis if you if you're choosing between one sport and another. I'm not sure there's anything else that could. So I guess my answer to you is if this doesn't beef up tennis in the country or certainly ignite some passion for it, um, I don't think anything will. Did you spend much time with them um, off court? I mean, was did, did you get a sense of? Uh sort of Roger's state of mind. Obviously, they were they were both coming off Australia. Did you get a sense of sort of where either of those two guys are in February? Uh, no, not really. I didn't spe- spend much time around them at all. They were involved in functions uh, pretty much all day, every day. I did have a chat with Carlos Costa, and I said, you know, how you been enjoying it? And he goes, Oof. These guys are working me hard, man. <laughs> so, so I guess Rafa had lots of commitments and stuff that he was doing with, with Roger. And, uh, and I didn't really discuss post-Australian Open or, or where they're feeling. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know, but Rafa also played a, an exhibition with uh, David Freer in Kuwait. So he had some uh, right, right, commitments right, right, there before right. actually, yeah, before coming down to South Africa. So it seems like it was a week yeah. where both guys had a lot, of, a lot on their plates. And the tour was really put to the side for the last seven days. I, I love Roger Federer's father uh, with his phone out the whole time, uh, capturing all this. I, th- I thought was, uh, I don't know if you saw that, but uh, the Robbie Federer was, was videotaping everything. And, and part of you wanted to say, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure there are video crews there that would be happy to send you a link, but it was also very endearing that this was... Uh, like a father watching his, you know, kindergartner at a at a school play. Um, let let me did did you share my uh, <laughs> did 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 you share the sentiment that that I had a little bit of uh, sympathy for Novak Djokovic, who wins his seventeenth major and edges closer and continues his his great march, and he, he got a day or two of uh, of a victory tour and then the whole tennis gaze was uh, diverted to South Africa and. Uh, 
we quickly stopped talking about beating Dominic team in five sets and we were suddenly talking about uh, a charity match. Did you, uh, did, did you share this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel, feel for, for Novak in that department. And, and also I just almost got the feeling that after winning in Australia, he couldn't appreciate uh, the joy of winning. Um, because it was almost like me against you. So when he won, rather than that, that unbelievable feeling of elation, it was more feeling of, I told you so. I knew I'd win to all you people out there in Rod Lab Arena. Why, why did you doubt me? Why didn't you support me? So I feel, I feel for Novak that he should be enjoying these moments much more than, than what he is. Um, and I think that that's a little unfair, given what this guy's doing in this era. But as we've often said, you know, by 2008, people had joined sides already. You're mm-hmm. either a Roger fan or a Rafa fan. And they have not enjoyed this guy coming in and being the party spoiler, whether, you know, they, they will make up any reasons they want to, to dislike him. But the fact of the matter is what he has done in this generation is, you know, in itself is one of the greatest achievements, given, given the opposition he's had to face and beat. Oh, absolutely, and I, and I think you know you you just sort of do this as a, as a math exercise, and look the guy the guy's won what is it now F- five of the last seven, he's the youngest of the three. He can play on any surface. I I think a lot of people are like, hold on a second, this this guy here who's third now may end up leapfrogging the other two by the time all this is said and done. True, true, and and. It- Again, it was a discussion we were having a lot of last week because Rafa and Roger were in town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the fans of those respective players are now already changing their tune because when it was all about Grand Slams, now they're saying, oh, it's all about who's the most loved. That's what's, what's going to count. <laughs> These two are much more loved than Novak. So they're already changing their tune almost in anticipation of uh, perhaps Novak uh, surpassing them. Which, which is kind of funny because a couple of years ago it was only about majors and whoever had the most majors, that was the only barometer to measure the greatest against. Um, so, yeah, in some ways I get a little tired talking about it yeah, because exactly. let's wait for it to be, exactly. to be done and dusted. But at the same time, I do get a lot of... Uh, I'm intrigued by how the respective fan groups go at one another. I mean... On social media yesterday, I was in a rush just, you know, saying I put out a tweet and I actually forgot to put in Raphael Nadal's name. Oh, forget. I hope so you're wearing a helmet. It's fantastic to have these people oh. out here. And then the next thing, you know, I've got everybody saying I'm so disrespectful exactly. to Nadal. I'm, I'm on a plane. The contest <laughs> exactly. is I'm on a plane. It's about to take off. And I want you to put the pictures <laughs> in. And now it's like, oh, I've got no respect towards Rafa. And it's like, come on, man, you know. This is this is what you're up against. This is what social media is like, and and I can see how the respective fan groups, because they are so big and powerful, have created I think a lot of negativity towards Novak Djokovic, which I think is unfair. Yeah, so someone made an interesting point to me. They said the other thing too. All all three of these fan groups are, are also wildly out of character with the three players they represent. I mean, you know, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are the three of the most sort of upstanding, mellow guys, respectful toward each other and everyone else. And the fan groups, <laughs> the fan groups are so not representative of the three players. But someone made an interesting point to me. They said, 
uh, a criticism of Federer is seen as as value driven, and a criticism of Nadal is somehow again seen as value driven, and a criticism of Djokovic or a feeling that he's omitted or not loved is seen almost as an as an ethnic slur. You're you're almost saying something about the Balkans, um, and I, I thought that was an interesting prism to think about this. Um, you know, obviously when when, you, when we root for a player, it obviously goes a lot deeper. It, it says something about our values and what we prioritize and what we, you know, we're, we're expressing ourselves. But someone made an interesting point that a lot of the, the Djokovic chrism in particular is sort of seen as almost an, you know, almost an ethnic slur, which was something I did. I, I don't agree or disagree. It was just something interesting to think about. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what's interesting is, is, is what you said about the groups and how different they they are to, to the players that they support. I've never thought of it, but I think it's, it's spot on as well. But I guess it's social media in this day and age. But I, I want to understand you when you say value. What do you mean by that when you're saying you're following Roger and Rafa because of, of value? I think it's true for for rooting in general, right? I mean, when we say I love Serena Williams, I I don't think it's because oh she has beautiful technique on her forehand. I think it's mm-hmm. what does she represent? Sometimes it can be what they wear. Sometimes it can be where the player is from, how they go about their business, what their social media profile is. I, I think Got it's you. true. I, I think it's true, sort of in in sports in general. But in most sports, you sort of have this hometown. You know, these are my warriors representing my territory. I think in tennis, a lot of times, when you say, I love Maria Sharapova, I don't think it's because she won five majors. I think it's because she represents something that you find appealing. Do you, do you, uh, do you, do you buy that? Do you buy that? Absolutely spot on, because it's it's amazing. Um, you know, some of uh, my, my, my woman friend love... Djokovic because they think he's edgy, but often their personalities are edgy and and more more pushing the boundaries. Whereas the ones who love Nadal are slightly more conservative, and he's you know good looking with a bandana. Um, so I can totally right. understand what you mean by that, and it it is spot on. It's you know I think in those in the case of those three. The tennis results are almost a byproduct of exactly. of what they represent. Exactly, and then it almost becomes per- personal when when there's any sort of, you know, any sort of criticism suddenly becomes something you're a criticism of you and what you yeah. stand for. Um, let let me ask you one more question, and then we'll 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 do a segue here. You you mentioned uh, how okay. suddenly love love and affection is suddenly. Do you have the expression in South Africa? Uh, I guess it would work for rugby. The, the goalposts are moving. You're, you're changing the goalposts. Of course. All right. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. You feel the goalposts changing in the uh, in this goat debate in this in this greatest of all time debate. <laughs> um, you you mentioned love, which of course cannot be quantified. Um, there are no analytics for love, even though uh, I would love to see. Some approximation of that. You, you and I had a fun. Uh, we, we talk about the bad of social media. You and I had a fun discussion on social media, and a lot of other people joined in about where data currently sits in uh, in tennis right now. You you can't have analytics mm-hmm. for love, but you can have uh, tennis analytics for a lot of things. Um, and we were we were talking, uh, I think, a bit about. I think a lot of this this pivot that Novak Djokovic seems to have taken uh, a, perhaps a bit away from. 
analytics and, and changing up his team a bit. And you had mentioned the data only goes so far. Where, where do you see all, all of these quantifiables that we now have access to? Where do you see the intersection between tennis and data right now? Um, I think data is useful, but tennis is such a reactive and, and fluid sport that it, it's very difficult. And plus, you don't have intermatch coaching like you do in a lot of other sports. I know your sports in America love their data. But you've got time to think about everything. You're getting instructions in baseball about what kind of pitching this guy likes. You've got time to think about it. You don't, you're not having to react to a shot all the time. You know, same in, in basketball. You've got the timeouts. You've got set plays that you can – you can't really have set plays in tennis except on the serve and the return of serve. And I think that's an area I highlighted. The one area of analytics I find interesting in tennis is players' tendencies on – on break points because it's such an important point in the mm-hmm. scoring system of a tennis match. Um, so, and you have to remember, it's just a tendency. And there's, there's nothing definitive about that. And the moment I think you try and sell it as a definitive and it doesn't happen, a player gets highly annoyed with everybody in his camp. And I think that's where you've got to be very careful with analytics and how you sell it to the player. And Ooh. you speak to most players, that's what they will tell you. And, and even to, you know, as far as I had a good chat with Goran Ivanisevic about that. Right, and, yeah. and he mentioned that when it doesn't go the way the player expects it to go, it thumbs up at you as if to say, yeah, great stuff on the, uh, on the feedback there. That didn't work so well. And already it puts him in an angry frame of mind. Um, so. Oh, that's really wait, wait, that's, that's really interesting. That's really, I mean, that, that's you know, it's it, it reminds me you're, you're it's like yelling at your broker. You know, I I told you to, uh, I told you to put money in, uh, you know, in 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 gold. It was a fifty five percent chance. Well, um, that's really interesting. So so you're saying when sometimes when players are yelling at their, you know, we see this a lot and a lot more often. Sometimes we see players yelling at their at their box at their team. You think sometimes that's because the data the data failed them. You you said he went cross court oh, oh. when he hit a return on the run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ooh. it's a great story. He was telling me. I think it was Darren Kale was uh, telling a good story at the coaching conference uh, recently in in the states when he was helping out Andy Murray um, as as one of the Adidas coaches, and you know he said to him, "Don't be scared to use use the drop shot." And he, he played the drop shot early on in the match. It was like, you know, in the first game, and the guy got there and hit it for a clean winner. And he, and he turned to him and he said, good job, coach. You're a great coach, man. Way to recommend the drop shot on that one. You know? <laughs> so this, that's the beauty of tennis, is that you have to figure it out yourself, depending on the situation. And you don't know, yes, a player has tendencies, and the ability to guess those tendencies that's right. a skill, but I believe that skill is often down to gut feel, how you feel in that very moment. You can have a connection with that guy on the other side of the court, and you have this feeling. I don't know if you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, but yeah, he talks sure, about sure. how important that gut feel is. And, and I think that is as important, if not more important, than just going on, on straight stats. What's happened in the, in the two hours or three hours you know, there's constant feedback that you're getting from the guy on the other side of the net. And I think that 
that intuition is massive. And and that can never be uh, that can never be built into an algorithm. Uh, uh, that's what I think, especially in a sport that is as fluid as as tennis is. Different if you're playing a sport like golf, where you know everything is static, yes, the ball is not moving. You've got complete control, and that's why I took about serves and returns as being the one area that's very interesting to me because John Wertham might have a favorite serve. And you know that because you've practiced a thousand serves. And every time you serve down the middle on the juice side, you hit the can. But every time you serve out wide, you kind of miss the can. Right. Um, and that's been something that's been part of your DNA for, for the last 10 years. So as a coach, I would be saying to you, look, you know, the stats prove in matches that when you go down the team, you generally hit your, your spot more often. You might not necessarily win the point, but I would say to you, John, in those big moments, go with the shot that has served you well. That's when I think it's important. But when you talk about guys hitting two shots cross court, one down the line, and then he gets the third one uh, to the backhand and comes in, and right. I think you've got to be so careful. There's a lot of data out there. People are wanting to make money out of it, sell it, quantify it into monetary terms, and, and make something of it. And I understand that. There's a job for, for companies out there, but I think in tennis, you've got to be very careful, John. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're essentially saying the same thing, which is, mm-hmm. first of all, you, you have to make sure the data is clean. I mean, one of my issues with tennis data so often is that it just doesn't tell the story, and it's not statistically significant. Or like you say, there's, there is so much context, and there is so much situational going on. And it could be something as silly, you know, I, I have a blister, so I want to shorten the points. Or it could be a, a windy day against a left-hander. You know, there, there's so much. Or the, the guy on the other side of the net, uh, I'm agitated because I played him two weeks ago. Um, there is, there is I mean, so much that goes on. Point. Every single one of those are spot on. Um, but I also feel, but the flip side of that is I also feel, someone was telling me about a player who uh, I will remain nameless named Stan Wawrinka, who apparently hits a passing shot one way on the run and another way from a social, from a standing position. And it would be really helpful to know that if I were on the other side of the net. You know, he goes cross-court on the run and he goes down the line when he doesn't have to move as much. And it's very consistent. And if I were on the other side of the net, it would be crazy of me not to want that information. No, and, you know, that's all good and well, but... Often under under intense pressure in you know the biggest matches, right, right. it's not so easy to have that clarity of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when all you're worried about is making the approach shot to his back end, or you're then worrying about is he a bit more static or is he on the run? My tendency would be if I was a guy on the other side of the court to to come in and take up a natural position. Would I be gambling to to guess one side or another? I mean, I understand those tendencies, but right, it's, no, it's, good. it's a difficult one. And I think, I think you know, there will be people. Again, also the player is important. What kind of player are you? If you're, you know, Shranic is known as somebody who likes a lot of analytics and a lot of feedback. Kevin Anderson is another one like that. They might be more comfortable with that. Other players are, are very much instinctual. Perhaps somebody I don't know, like a Dan Evans, who, who plays with a lot of feel and, and just general good. Court craft, right? You don't want to take away that from him. No, it's a good it's 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 a good point. I mean, I think a lot of it depends. You're you're right. Um, not just on the type of 
person the player is, but the type of player the player is. And at, at four all, do you want your head cluttered or do you want your head clean? And, and, some, and some players would say, give me any advantage I could possibly get and any incremental edge I'll take. And other players would tell you, I just want to go out there and do what I've always done and play tennis and get back to what brought me here. I don't want to be thinking about 56% chances versus 44% chances. It's an interesting discussion. No, excellent point. Yeah, it is an ex- it, absolutely, absolutely. I, I tell you what they do here with, uh, I mean, obviously you have a lot more data points, but with baseball and basketball, they, they do what's called high leverage, where you have a different set of statistics, a different set of analytics for pressure situations. So your at-bat in the second inning of a baseball game is, is looked at differently as your at-bat when it's a tie game in the ninth inning. Or, or the jump shot you take when the score is tied with four seconds left in the game is, is categorized differently than the jump shot you take you know, in the first few minutes of the game. Maybe, maybe tennis needs to refine uh, and have something like that. Just, just tell me what happens at four all. I don't, I don't want to know what happens uh, you know, 1,000 points a year in some 500-level event on a Tuesday night. Just tell me what my opponent does in the tight moments. Anyway, oh, no, true, um, true. And then also, no, your spot on. It's a very important point, John. And it also depends who's on the other side of the net as well. So uh, I've always said when I'm commentating, the only thing that matters in sport is how you deal with pressure because everybody's great, one or yeah, two or three. Or, right. But it's when the chips are down that we have seen players play completely differently to what they did in the opening six games of a set. Miss routine shots, serve double faults, miss basic returns simply because the pressure is on, and I couldn't agree with you more. Those metrics that you measure by have to be much more heavily weighted in those situations than anyone in any other situation. But all that said, I'm happy we're having this conversation because five years ago it was, uh, you know, break point converted, and uh, that was the extent of data in tennis. So anyway, um, <laughs> this uh, we're, we're we've we've hit our mark. This was this was terrific as always. Always a pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure talking. Um, well, like, likewise, John, um, you've got so many good insights, and I think it's important that we discuss. It would be interesting to have a, a three or four way panel discussion with people who are very much involved in the a- analytics. Because one of the questions I always ask is, is if I give you the game plan, okay, I know how to beat Rafa, this is how you've got to do it, um, but the guy loses to him. So, so, where does the analyst sit in that position? Because he knows what the game plan is. This is what you need right. to do. And and my answer to that is in tennis and the sport, everything is about execution. You can have the best game plans in the world. You can know all the metrics, but if you can't execute, you know, a lot of it counts for naught. Right. So that's that's always one of my, my responses to the player. When your player loses, how much accountability do you have? Everyone has a game plan until they get punched in the face. No, it's, it's easy. It's easy to it's easy to sit there in the lounge and say all you have to do is win fifty one percent of the points and you're going to win this match and all you have to do here is patterns and I mean I've I've seen these discussions and yeah. it it sounds great when uh, you're you're sitting there in the lounge or when you're watching tape or when you're telling me that the third shot of every rally Nadal if you have him behind the baseline he's going to go cross court when you're actually out there and have to execute uh, I think you're right it's um. It's much, yeah, it's it suddenly becomes game, it? no, no, doesn't become theoretical anymore. All right, this uh, this is great. 
It's always a pleasure. Thanks for your um, – th- this was really helpful. I mean, I think we all followed this this match for Africa with a smile, and, and the video was great, and the team there did a great job with social media. It was very fun to sort of uh, get get the updates, but you were there. You were calling the match. You were in the stadium. So uh, I, I think your your insight, as always, is uh, is excellent and appreciated. So thanks. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to chat to you and be on your show. Thanks, mate. All right. We'll catch up soon. Take care. All right. Thanks for Robbie for spending some time with us. Uh, We talked to him, I think it was after Wimbledon, and had a lot of nice feedback how we should have him on more often, and we aim to please. And he uh, is generous enough to uh, accommodate. Robbie's one of of the good guys out there, one of my my running buddies out on the uh, tennis caravan. So thanks to Robbie and uh, Jamie. You you are producing that podcast as ever. Thoughts? Did you did you watch the uh, did you see much of the the tennis for for Africa match? I think you're right. It did come across on on the feeds. There was a lot of uh, of course Bill Gates, Trevor Noah, as as Robbie talked about. So lots of people from the U.S. there, big big names. Um, I just I think the whole dynamic that you guys talked about between Roger and Rafa is so interesting. And to your point, how they I think have sort of accepted this whether they're going to be pit against each other or just put in the same paragraph that they just kind of have to embrace that um and so it was really cool to see them two doing stuff together having a good time it's always nice to see the the light-hearted side that we sometimes see uh the the team competitions or things like that it reminds me a lot of bernie supporters and trump supporters <laughs> they just come together for the greater good and they put down differences and they realize that they may be locked in a rivalry but at the end of the day we're all people um I just, I, I do think part of what makes this whole thing so remarkable is just it's so inconsistent with the times where everything, sports included, has become so tribal. Um, but that seemed like a uh, a terrific event, and uh, good to see Roger Federer emotional as uh, as always. I don't know if you saw. Um, it seemed like when his mom hugged Rafa Nadal, strangely enough, that seemed to trigger uh, this this emotional wellspring as much as everything else, and. Uh, just the, the spectacle of it all. I mean, again, I think I think the scale of this. I mean, we. I went to a Davis Cup tie once in Spain in Seville. It was actually when I think Nadal was still a teenager. Uh, the U.S. against Spain, and it was played in a soccer stadium, and it was. I think I think it was the biggest crowd ever to watch a tennis match at the time. It was half the size of this, so I, I can't imagine. Part of it's just watching a little ball in a soccer stadium. <laughs> But I can't imagine how that played out. I mean, big big screens only get you so far. Fifty one thousand people in one venue to watch tennis is a interesting proposition. But I suppose that tells you something about um, Roger Federer's popularity. Yeah, I mean, exhibitions in general are so interesting. They we know that the players don't take them half as seriously as any major. Oh, sorry. No, I'm kidding. Big yeah, right. right. Uh, but. To your point, people fill up stadiums to come see them probably stand there or interact with each other just as much as they want to see them hit the ball across the net. So it just, again, speaks to their their star power and just how much of an impact they have on the sport um, and just on a global stage in general. I think that's the other interesting thing is how um, there's not too many players in other American sports that have such a global reach as tennis players do. Um, and that's, that's always so interesting to me uh, in comparing all the different sports is how, how much people like Federer and Nadal have such a, a global worldwide impact on so many different people. And other sports would kill for that. I mean, the, the NFL is still 
Right. The Scratching NBA their is, heads. I mean, the NBA the NBA is way ahead of other sports. Right. But not nearly as much. But right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, they've right. only sort of conquered a, a, a small area, um, and that's only a handful of players. Um, so it's very interesting. I think, um, no, and I think tennis has a real edge. We sometimes forget this. I mean, the other sports are still trying to figure out how to globalize. And uh, tennis is way ahead of the game. Um, all right, we have uh, we have another guest coming in. February strange strange month for the sport, and I, I do think we need to. Can we pause for fifteen seconds and uh, give Novak Djokovic some love? I mean, I do, I do. I don't know if you caught that. Way. I was telling Robbie, I, I did feel this pang of, uh, and somehow this this maybe echoes a, a broader theme. But here, Novak Djokovic wins a match that counts and <laughs> wins his seventeenth major. And it's on a Sunday, and it's Super Bowl Sunday, and it sort of gets swept up. I mean, listen, in busy week in the United States, we had an impeachment, we had a State of the Union address, we had the Iowa caucus. Right. Um, a lot happened, and then the tennis news was immediately in Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm sure Djokovic is <laughs> thinking, uh, "Wait a second, I, I just want a match that actually counts and won my 17th major, and I'm within three of uh, Federer, which I've never been before." Where's where's my parade? Um, so Novak Djokovic, um, let's give you uh, let's give you some due. That's uh, I've said my piece. All right, that uh, <laughs> that does it for uh, for this week. Thanks, Jamie, as always. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Robbie for spending some time with us, and uh, we will have another podcast next week. Um, if you want to leave a review or subscribe, please do so. It always helps. We are at um, at, at Stitcher. Amazon, wherever finer podcasts are sold. Leave a review and uh, keep the guest suggestions coming. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll do it again in seven days.